Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine Podcast Radio. You're about to listen to an episode of Tech Done Different Podcast with Ted Harrington. Do you follow the pack or challenge the status quo? Join Ted as he explores how to succeed by going against conventional wisdom. You'll hear leaders in technology and security tell stories about how they achieve their success by doing things differently. Knowledge is power. Now, more than ever. CrowdSec, the collaborative and open-source cybersecurity solution. Analyze behaviors, respond to attacks, and share signals across the community for free. Let's make the Internet safer together. Learn more at CrowdSec.net. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Tech Done Different. As always, I'm your host, Ted Harrington, and with me today is our special guest, Terry Dunlap. Terry is formerly the co-founder of Refirm Labs, who was recently acquired by Microsoft, where now he serves the role of Principal Program Manager. Terry, thanks for being on the show today. Ted, thanks for having me on, man. I appreciate the opportunity to share my stories and maybe enlighten your audience and help them out at the same time. Absolutely. Yeah, so you and I obviously first got connected because of the great contributions that Reform Labs has made to IoT Village. And that's, of course, how, uh, how we know each other. And then we started chatting about how you might participate in this podcast today. And it was a no-brainer once you started talking about the process of starting tech companies and ultimately getting acquired by you know, by Microsoft and that I think a lot of our listeners today are probably wanting to go through a similar experience like that. So why don't we start there? Maybe you could just describe your journey a little bit and, uh, you know, maybe talk about successes or failures along the way. And we'll just kind of dig into the entrepreneur's journey in tech. Dude, how, how long is your podcast? Because I got a story that could go for hours, <laughs> brother. I mean, let's, let, let's start. And this is, this is no BS. You guys can look this up on my LinkedIn profile. I actually have the news articles out there that talk about this story from you know, a local reporter's perspective. But in 1985, I was actually arrested for computer hacking. And I was using the Commodore 64, 300 baud dial-up modem, war dialing, the whole war games type thing. We actually got involved, me and some friends, into actually credit card fraud. And so we started doing dumpster diving and piecing together the carbons of the credit cards for anybody that is old enough to remember credit cards when they had the old swiping machines and they had to take out the carbons and rip them up and throw them in the trash. We would go out to the malls in the middle of the night and actually dive through the dumpsters and pull out those carbon copies, piece them together, get the full credit card number, expiration date, everything, and then send them up to a BBS, a bulletin board system out west in California called The Well. And we would get credit card numbers from there. And then we would use those credit card numbers to just buy things, you know, via phone call catalogs at that time, because there was really no significant internet presence during that time. So we ended up getting busted. And thankfully, there were no actual hardcore laws on the books at the time. This was 1985. The first law to hit the books was the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act of 1986, which would have made our actions a felony under the government's law. So the only thing they could charge us with was credit card fraud. Even though we were hacking AT&T systems and war dialing and doing free long distance calls and ordering all kinds of crap, the only thing they could get us was for credit card fraud. And we ended up spending, having three years probation. We weren't supposed to touch a computer. And this is as you're getting ready to go to college and pay the court costs. 
So that was my introduction to, to computers and security and hacking was, you know, 1984 through 86. And they threw me in juvenile detention, which literally scared the hell out of me when I was in there. And it pretty much scared me straight. If anybody remembers the old TV series, Scared Straight, I was one of those people who got scared straight, stayed away from that. So I, I stayed away from computers, even in college. I didn't major in computers or do anything with tech. I actually got a degree in poli sci and econ from college and then went to work in the financial industry. But it was many years later that I started working with an advisory firm, Deloitte & Touche. And I was talking to the sysadmin guy there about my past exploits, about how I got in trouble with the law, hacking around with computers. And he asked me, are, are you still doing that today? And I said, well, of course not. I mean, I, I have a, a Linux system, a lab set up in my basement. I like to tool around with that, play around with stuff, but I'm not doing anything criminal anymore. And remember, this is this is this this time frame is very early 90s. And he told me at that time, he goes, Well, do you know people actually nowadays get paid to break in to companies to test their security? And I was like, stunned. This is penetration testing in its infancy. And Deloitte had a pen testing team. And he said, Hey, let me make some introductions and maybe you know you guys will hit it off and uh, they have some openings and you might become a penetration tester. And sure enough, I did. I passed their tests. The stuff just kind of came naturally to me. And we were working on all kinds of different projects, which opened me up to professional penetration testing, which I didn't even know was a thing up to that point. And so I'm getting paid to hack. And I thought this was awesome. Part of, you know, the Deloitte gig at that time was, you know, some paid training. So I went to my very first SANS conference up in Baltimore, Maryland, and I was in the concourse waiting to get a Starbucks. And, you know, if you've ever been to these conferences, it's usually just your first name and, you know, the name of your company. And I was looking around this woman in line behind me basically had her first name and said, DOD. I didn't know her, but I told her, I said, I think it'd be awesome to work for the DOD because you guys are constantly under attack. That'd be such a challenging environment to work in. So we hit it off and we started talking. And she said at the end, hey, send me, my, send me your resume. My boss is always looking for good people. So I sent her my resume. It took a while for any response to come back. And she finally said, hey, look, I'm going to let you talk to our recruiter because he's interested in bringing you in for some open positions. So be expecting a call from him. So I'm expecting this call. Eventually it comes in. He tells me his name and he says he's with the U.S. National Security Agency. I was, I was floored. I couldn't believe it. So he told me that he got my resume from this person. Looked interesting. Can we conduct a phone interview? Said, sure enough, let's do it. So we did the phone interview. I passed the phone interview. They flew me out to the NSA. I did the whirlwind tour of interviews out there. By the end of a full day of interviews, I was told that there were like four or five different offices that wanted to present a uh, job offer to me. And he handed me my SF-86. For those of you in the government, you know what that is. If you have a security clearance, it's basically the package you have to fill out that is the paperwork for your security clearance. And this is, you know, everything from everything you've done the past 10 years, all your relatives on both sides of your family. I mean, the whole nine yards, they want to know about your friends. I'm curious to know how they, they reacted to the credit card hacking. Well, that's, that's what I told him. When he, when he handed me this package, I was almost on the way out the door. And then I turned around and stopped. They said, I need to tell you about what happened when I was 17 years old. And I told him the whole story. And he said, well, you're not actively doing that now, are you? It's like, of course not. I mean, I'm getting paid to do it as a professional, but I'm not doing it maliciously or as a criminal. And he said, well, then don't worry about it. This is the skill set that we're looking for. And remember, this is now the point in time here is just shortly after 9-11. 
So this is October of the, after the 9-11 attacks. And so the intelligence community is on a hiring spree. So the timing for me couldn't have been better because they were scrambling to get people filled in analyst roles, cyber roles to fight the war on terror. So I told him everything that happened. And he said, just get this package back to us because the way that the NSA operates when they have a job opening is that they offer the job to five on average, five people for the same spot, simply because most people cannot pass the background check. So whoever passes the background check first out of those five, give or take, is the one who gets the actual job offer. So obviously I went and filled it out as quickly as I could, gave them access to anything that they wanted to have access to. And about nine months later, I actually got approved to get my top secret security clearance and work at the NSA. So I start on September of 2003, and I immediately find out where I think I can apply my skills the best. They initially have you in one particular role, but once you're in that role for a certain amount of time, you're free to move around and look elsewhere. I ended up working in what has become known now as TAL, Tailored Access Operations. And in that group, my job was to identify vulnerabilities in the embedded devices that were being used by high-value terrorist targets. So we're talking if they're using cable modems, Wi-Fi routers, uh, anything that has an embedded operating system that we could find potential vulnerabilities that could be weaponized for offensive use cases. So that was, that was our job at the agency. So, for example, we might get word from the field that a particular target is using a, I don't know, Linksys WRT54G. So we would go out to Linksys website, download the firmware, reverse engineer that firmware, looking for vulnerabilities. Once we find those vulnerabilities, now begins the arduous task of can we actually weaponize these? Can these vulnerabilities actually be exploitable remotely? And that's a very time-consuming process. So anybody who's done this knows that uh, this takes a lot of time, a lot of trial and error, and it's not always, you, you don't always succeed. It's, it's like searching for a needle in a haystack. Yeah, so let me let me ask you about that. I know we'll we'll continue on the the journey of your your career arc. We'll come, we'll come back to that, but I want to talk about this idea of weaponizing vulnerabilities because what you're talking you're talking about it in the context of certainly national security and government, but the principles apply even in the commercial sector as well. So for people who are listening who are not themselves maybe ethical hackers or security consultants or security analysts, maybe the people who are building software systems, how should they be thinking about this these ideas of the the distinction you're drawing is there's a vulnerability and then there's, is it exploitable? Can we weaponize it? How, what's the advice to a tech leader about those, the distinction between those two ideas? The way that we would approach things would almost be from a criminal perspective. How do we break into these places? And, and a lot of tech leaders don't have access actually to the source code or the firmware, and they still need to make these critical decisions on, do I buy this IOT device? you know, sight unseen, what type of assurances do I have that is actually secure? That's one of the things that, that you know, my company is working on and is taking our knowledge that we've used to identify these vulnerabilities and make it very easy for people in position, particularly builders of these devices, to make sure that their devices aren't exploitable by foreign actors like me in other countries or that the enterprise is not currently running these on their existing network. You know, short of some type of automated system or some type of certification process, 
that has yet to be developed. I mean, there are a lot of standards out there that say, you know, manufacturers should follow these NIST standards to make sure that their firmware is secure. It's just a standard. It's not a law. It's not requiring anybody to do that yet. So automated systems, some of the the, the platforms that we've developed that I'll talk about later go a long way in helping that. We're not there completely yet. So, I mean, it, it probably doesn't answer the question directly. It's not an easy way to you know, be assured that you're purchasing or acquiring or building a secure product. But there are ways, as as I'll explain later, that things we can do, even some very simple things from a developer perspective that you can do to make sure that your systems are secure for your end users. Does that make sense? I know it was kind of a long-winded answer to a short question. <laughs> well, so if we summarize, I guess, the, the different aspects to your answer, I think what I heard you say was two parts. It sounds like the advice is part one is there are things that can and should be done in-house by developers and maybe even security professionals that might exist within an organization. And the second thing is there needs to be some degree of outside assistance. You, you described it as certification or testing programs or whatever, but some sort of validation from a third party. Is, is that a correct summary of the way you're describing this? Yeah. It, you know, when, when we look at, at, at firmware, even today, we're kind of surprised I mean, we're not surprised anymore, but initially we were surprised at how many vendors are shipping brand new products today, brand new products that are using open source library components that have high ranking severities and flaws that are 5, 10, 15 years old. And that's unacceptable. And that's really hard for somebody in an enterprise or somebody who's a procurement agent or somebody who's buying a device, whether you're buying it for the enterprise or for your home, how do you know that that manufacturer has actually implemented security security properly? We also see numerous times, shockingly, private cryptographic keys from the manufacturer baked into the firmware image. I mean, you shouldn't be shipping firmware images with your private crypto keys in there. In fact, we had one particular customer come to us, an automotive manufacturer who was having a ODB dongle created. And for those of you that don't know, that's the, that little box that usually gets plugged in under the dashboard on the driver's side to, to help service techs uh, do servicing and, and uh, getting diagnostics from the engine. They wanted to create one that allowed service techs in the garage of these uh, dealerships to wirelessly interact with the car, get all the diagnostics and update and flash firmware remotely without having to be hardwired in, which at this point in time, that's how the service techs would perform the upgrades. However, they wanted to come out with a new one that was wireless. So some consultants asked us, hey, can you look at this from this tier one supplier to this major automotive manufacturer and make sure it's secure? So when we started looking at it, there were two things we noticed. First thing right off the bat is that it fires up a wireless access point that is completely unencrypted and wide open. So anybody that's running aircraft could be driving around the dealership and easily see the access point that is coming off that particular dongle on that vehicle and attach to it and interact with it. That's that's issue number one. Issue number two is that the tier one supplier actually had their private crypto key, the signing key for the firmware image in the firmware itself. Now, a lot of people didn't understand what the security threat to that was. So we we demonstrated it to them. We got the firmware off the device and the key. We made changes to the firmware image, innocuous changes, signed it as that tier one supplier and flashed it back onto that device. And so now when you actually got into the car, once, this, once our, our exploit, if you will, took effect, 
you turn on the turn signal to turn on the right one, the left one lights up and vice versa. You turn on the air conditioner, the heat kicks on. You turn on the heat, the air conditioner kicks on. So we have demonstrated, look, you have this open Wi-Fi access point anybody can connect to. And if you had somebody nefarious like us connecting to it, we could extract that, that key off that firmware, modify the firmware, sign it, and flash it back onto that device into the vehicle, causing all kinds of chaos and commotion. So these are the things that we're finding in firmware today that you know nobody's really checking this stuff except for companies like us that you know we came from this Intel background. We know how to take advantage of these flaws and it's a, it's a new frontier. I mean, there, have, there, there aren't a lot of news stories about attacks as a result of weak or insecure firmware, but we're starting to see more and more of that trending nowadays because it, 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 it is uncharted territory for, for a lot of people. Right. Right. So I want to jump ahead a little bit to the part of, or the story, I guess, in your arc where you were able to build a company that you were able to ultimately be acquired by Microsoft. I think there's a lot of people listening who would be very, very interested in that entrepreneurial journey. So I know there's obviously a, a gap between where we, you know, where I first interrupted you and started talking about geeking out on the security stuff to that. Yeah, that's fine. It's, it's easy enough to cover. No, I, I just going to say, so, you know, I spent some time at the NSA. I left the NSA, started my first company, Tactical Network Solutions, which is an offensive cyber company uh, helping weaponize exploits for the greater intelligence community and friendly foreign governments. And as I mentioned, during our actual employment at the NSA, reverse engineering this firmware was a manual process, finding these vulnerabilities. So to meet the demand for the weaponization of these exploits, we identified the need to start automating this process. So slowly over many years, I'm talking five, seven years, we started to automate the process where we could go to a manufacturer's website, download the firmware, and in 30 minutes, give us a roadmap on where the weaknesses are and how we could turn those weaknesses into exploits. The skill set is not taught in schools. Well, maybe it is nowadays, but back then it really wasn't that much of a priority or, or much of an interest. So what we ended up doing was creating training classes to teach people how to do this. So that was Tactical Network Solutions, developing this automated way to identify vulnerabilities that could be weaponized training people how to do this as well. And it was during this time that we actually showcased this platform we had developed at the time we called Centrifuge uh, at an investor conference. It was somebody's idea in the company to say, hey, you should go to this uh, event and talk to these investors. It's like, I don't want to talk to investors. I have a government contracting company. I'm doing well. I don't need anybody's money. So I went and I did it and we got cornered right away by some investors and said, have you ever thought about using this platform to help manufacturers of IoT devices protect their firmware before they even ship it out to the market? And we hadn't thought about that because you know, our, our mindset has always been offensive focus. So we have, we've never played in the defensive world. So it took a lot of arm twisting from them to convince us that this, this was worth pursuing. So what we did is we took the core team and that platform we developed and spun it into a brand new company that was investor backed called Refirm Labs and had no connection to you know, government contracts or the spooky world of Intel or military, anything, nothing at all like that. My co-founder and I owned both companies and right off the bat, we started acquiring customers like Charter Communications, AT&T, Netgear, Nestle, companies like this who are building IoT devices 
understood where we came from with a different mindset. We don't go into it looking to secure stuff. We go into it looking how to break stuff. And if we can break it, then here's how we should fix it. That I think is what appealed to a lot of our customers was given our background, where we came from and how we kind of thought about the problem set differently. And so we ended up at the RSA Innovation Sandbox in 2018. And that's when Microsoft saw us and they, unbeknownst to me at the time, they were already on an acquisition spree to build out this uh, IoT end-to-end infrastructure from chip to cloud. And they had just made a purchase of CyberX out of Israel, who is able to go in and identify IoT devices on enterprise networks and do inventory and help protect those. But they wanted to dig a little further into the firmware. Hence, we popped up on their radar. Oh, that's great. Well, congrats on that that story arc for sure. I mean, what an exciting time, right? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So when you look back on it now, now you're on, well, you're not completely on the other side of it, but uh, as you, you've at least completed the transaction, um, what were the things that you think were the most significant in building your business that made it desirable? I mean, the first thing you've already described for sure, you did something that met a problem that the buyer was trying to solve. But then there was a process of due diligence and verifying how did you set up the company? You know, how sticky is your revenue? How sticky is your key personnel? What were the things that you think you did right? And what are the things you think maybe you could have done better in the next one? I think the things we did right is that we stuck to what we knew. And that is reverse engineering firmware, identifying vulnerabilities, period. Now, we lost a lot of potential sales from big name customers like Bank of America, Citigroup, Chase, JP Morgan, because when they heard about our platform, they loved it. And then the next question was, how do you identify the IoT devices on my network? It's like, well, we don't. That's, that's the problem. You already have to know what devices you're running. You already have to know the firmware version that you're running on these devices. And then you put that information into our platform, upload the firmware, and then we can give you that information. So from an enterprise security standpoint, we were losing a lot of deals because we did not have a network scanning capability to identify IoT devices. And so there was this discussion within the company, should we develop some type of network scanner? And the no camp won the position, which I agreed with, because that is we are not network scanning type people. We know how to examine firmware. That's what we excel at. That's what we've worked on all these years. Let's not get into another component that we have no expertise in because it's going to suck a lot of development time away from developing the core product. And of course, there's companies out there like Forescout and Armis and Vidu, I believe, that also do this you know, network discovery stuff. So the, the space was already starting to get crowded. Why should we enter that space? Let's just stick with what we know. And we ended up finding a home with IoT device builders because the way that we explained our our value prop was, you know, as you develop your firmware, even if you have source code analyzers checking your source code, you are probably integrating third-party components as well. Maybe maybe it's a, a Marvell chip or an Intel wireless driver or something into your into your firmware image. Now, your your the front end of your process will tell you that your code is clean and give you the thumbs up. But when you get that binary blob or that device driver from that third party and you compile it with your clean source code, what check do you have that your third party didn't accidentally introduce a vulnerability into your firmware and into your product? That's where we come in in the development process. Take that compiled firmware image, put it into our platform, 
it'll reverse engineer it and show you where the vulnerabilities are. And hopefully nothing shows up. But if something does show up, there's a high probability it came from your supply chain and not necessarily from your developers. So that that is where we gained a lot of traction was with device builders as they were creating the software just before it goes into the device and out to the masses like you and me. That's pretty fascinating to hear you describe that because I, I think what you have just described is probably something that every single entrepreneur experiences, the opportunity in an adjacent need. And it's the siren song that can sometimes, you know, drag the ship onto the rocks and you guys resisted it. So that's, that's really cool to hear. And it, it's interesting to hear you describe that resistance as part of what you did right. So I think that's a really important takeaway for everybody. As our time comes to a conclusion here, is there any parting insights or wisdom that you want to share with our audience about how they can think about either the security aspects of what you described today or the entrepreneurial aspects of running a tech company? I think from the entrepreneurial side of things, you, you know, you have to stay focused. Like I just illustrated, you know, we didn't want to get distracted by chasing deals and chasing revenue based on a demand that we had yet to build a capability for. It is, it is disappointing to go into a big name company like Bank of America or Citigroup and see what the potential is and know that you missed the deal because you can't scan the network for IoT devices. I mean, there, there was a lot of debate on, on you know, whether or not to pursue this. And thankfully, we stuck to our guns and stuck to our niche uh, and, and pursued that. And that's very tough to do. I wish I could describe or have a checklist of like a coping mechanism on how to deal with that once it arises, but I really don't. But you have to understand what you're really good at, even if it's as niche as something as analyzing firmware like ours was. And if you can become the best in class for what it is you do, you will be recognized for it. And it did take some time. I mean, I started back in 2007. We spun out Refirm Labs in 2017. And the acquisition by Microsoft of Refirm didn't take place until this year, May of 2021. So it's not, it's not a quick, you know, quick get rich scheme. This is something that took dedication. It took patience. It took a lot of power to stay focused and stay true to what we knew and what we were good at. And it paid off in spades in the end. Love it. What a beautiful note to end on, you know, become best in class and you will be recognized for it. That's that resonates with me. Hopefully it resonates with everybody else. Terry, thank you so much for spending time together today. I learned a lot from you. Ted, happy to do it anytime, man. I appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity. Awesome. And for everybody listening, if you want to learn more about Terry, learn more about the show or request to appear yourself as a guest, just go to tedharrington.com backslash podcast and we'll catch you next time. Crowdsec the collaborative and open source cybersecurity solution. Analyze behaviors, respond to attacks, and share signals across the community for free. Let's make the internet safer together. Learn more at crowdsec.net. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Tech Done Different Podcast with Ted Harrington. If you learned something new and this conversation made you think, then share itspmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.